The next section is Jesus' behavior question. People are going to begin to attack Jesus and his behavior and his authority. And we've seen that already, but it's coming back to that. And this is chapter 11, verses 14 through 54. In this section, the Pharisees' opposition against Jesus increases drastically. Likewise, Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees becomes greater as he then calls them out for their hypocrisy. So as Jesus gets closer and closer to Jerusalem to die, he's getting closer and closer to the heart and the headquarters of the Pharisees, which means the opposition is going to increase more and more and more. And that's okay because that opposition needs to increase to the point that it's going to kill Jesus. Chapter 11, verse 14. He was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the man had, who was been mute began to speak. And the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, By the power of Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons, he cast out demons. Others, to test him, began asking for a sign from heaven. But Jesus, realizing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is destroyed, and his divided household falls. So he's casting out these demons. And the Pharisees immediately accuse him of being in league with Baal Zabub, or sorry, Baal Zabul, or Beelzebul. Beelzebul, Baal Zabul are the same kind of a name. And this name comes from the Canaanite god of the storm that we saw back in the First Testament, specifically in the Gideon story of Judges chapter 6, and then in the Ezekiel, sorry, the Elijah story of Second Kings chapter 17, we, or sorry, First Kings chapter 17, we see this Baal very strong. He was the god of the storm, and they began to worship him. And his name was Baal Zabul. Baal Zabul, two words, means lord of the house. Baal meant lord, and Zabul meant house or temple. He ruled over them. The prophets actually renamed him Baal Zabub, because Baal Zabub means flies, lord of the flies, or lord of the poop, or the lord of the outhouse. Basically, you don't actually rule over creation, Baal. You just rule over outhouse. And this trash talking is played over multiple times through the First Testament. And so this got squished together. And then as the idea of Satan started to get more theologically developed among the Jews between the First and Second Coming, between the First and Second Testaments, the idea of a, a, a very powerful satanic figure that actually ruled over the demonic world started becoming more theologically prevalent. They begin to see Baal as that Satan figure and the embodiment of Satan because this is the greatest God that God kept attacking over and over again in the First Testament. And now the Satan figure is the greatest demonic concept that they have. And so they became merged together. So Baal Zabul or, ba- or Beelzebul, or Beelzebub, became synonymous with Satan. So they're basically accusing Jesus of being in league with Satan. Your power is coming from Satan, and you're in league with him. But Jesus, realizing their thoughts, said to them, Every king divided against itself is destroyed, and divided household falls. Satan and I are in league with each other, but I'm attacking Satan, and he's giving me the power to attack him. So basically, Satan is against himself, and his kingdom is divided and attacking itself. Do you honestly think that he would do that? So Satan, too, is divided against himself. How will his kingdom stand? I ask you this because you claim that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. 
Now, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do you, your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. So he says, look, why in the world would Satan attack himself and destroy his own kingdom when he hates God so much and wants to destroy that kingdom? That's not an intelligent thing. Yes, there are many countries and many nations that have attacked themselves, but they also usually only do that when there's nobody else to attack. Once somebody begins to attack them, then they begin to unite, like brothers and sisters. Like they fight and pick on each other and destroy each other. But then when somebody attacks one of their brothers and sisters, they're like, only I can pick on my brother and sister. And then they attack them and unite together. But not only that, you're human and you're dumb and selfish. But Satan is a diabolical creature who has no other greater desire but to unify it against God. He doesn't do that. There's always a kingdom for him to fight, and that's God. So why would Satan defeat himself? Why would he give me power to attack his own kingdom? If I can only have power because Satan gave it to me, then why would he let me use it against him? It's the same argument that the only way that Jesus would be able to do this is if God gave him the power. So if he's not in God's will, why would God give him the power? I'm not in Satan's will by attacking him. Why would he give me the power to do this? That doesn't make sense. Therefore, my power must come from God. And in fact, your sons, meaning your other Israelites, your disciples have cast out demons before. Your ancestors have cast out demons and attacked them. If casting out demons means you're in league with Satan, what does this say about all the people that you've discipled and all the people you admire that came before you? Your logic doesn't make sense. You're just trying to find reasons to attack me, and you're hoping that the people who are listening to are too dumb to realize how flawed your arguments are, and they'll just buy into your fake crap and hate me. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God or the hand of God, then the kingdom of God has already overtaken you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his possessions are safe. But when a stronger man attacks and conquers him, he takes away the first man's armor on which the man relied and divides up his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So a strong man can guard his house until the stronger man comes. And the idea is that there are some strong demons out there that are guarding the house of creation. When Adam and Eve surrendered to the serpent or to their own autonomy, they allowed this kingdom to fall into the hands of Satan and the demons. And they are very powerful beings that now have control over the kingdom of earth. But the stronger man has now come, Jesus Christ. And he's ready to kick in the doors and take back first his kingdom people through the death and resurrection of the cross. And then second, his actual physical kingdom through the second coming of Jesus Christ, when he regains control over the earth. The stronger man is here. So, those who are against me and do not gather with me will be scattered into the kingdom that I defeat. Verse 24. When an unclean spirit goes out of a person, it passes through the waterless places, looking for rest, but not finding any. Then it says, I will return to the house, the home I left. And when it returns, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. And then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they go in and they live there. So the last state of that person is worse than the first. So Jesus says, look, the only way to really truly win this battle is through me. 
The difference between me and all your disciples and ancestors that have been able to do this in the past is that when they cast out demons, all they could do was cast out the demon. But when that demon gets cast out, all it does is try to find another way to attack. It's like home alone. You may be able to drive them away the first time with the, the hot door handle or the tack on the foot or the shotgun, to the, uh, the BB gun to the, 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 the groin, but the reality is they're going to find another door to come in. And eventually they get in. And so what Jesus says, they just go, when they get cast out, they realize, I need more of me. And they go out and they get more. And they come back in. And now the state of the person is worse than it was before. Because the only way to make sure this doesn't happen again is to replace that spirit that you just cast out with a greater spirit. The Holy Spirit. That's the only thing that will guarantee that this won't happen again. When you drive a demon out of your life, and I don't care if it's an actual demon that you're possessed with and it got cast out of you, or if it's the demon of alcoholism or the demon of sex addiction or the demon of gossip or the demon of overeating or the demon of I want prestige and honor from people or success and power. When you finally say, I don't want that, and you finally like cut something out of your life that's been allowing that to come in, if you don't replace it with the Holy Spirit and give that, that corner of your life or that room of your house, you can clean that room out and turn on the light and kick everything out, but you can only keep that light on for so long and the dirt out for so long because we cannot multitask. You have to allow the Holy Spirit to come in and take over that room and surrender to it to guarantee that no new idol comes back in, no new addiction comes back in. No new demon comes back in. And this is the point he's making. There's a good example of this. There's this guy. I have this, if you want this audio or uh, video, I have it. But he was talking about how he got involved with demons. And he was, um, he was, uh, he was a medium. And he was consulting spirits and that kind of stuff. And he invited the spirit in. And it took over. And it would talk through him and that kind of stuff. And then he had to do it again. But every time he did it, he had to do this really complicated ritual and give it permission and all this kind of stuff, and then it would come in. And then eventually when he started inviting it in, all of a sudden another one came in with it. And he was like shocked and he was surprised, like, why is this coming? I didn't get permission for that one, just this one. Of course, it wasn't, he didn't think of it as a demon at that time. He thought of it as a spirit. But it started coming in. And then other ones started coming in. And then what he noticed over time was that they just started coming in uninvited. He didn't have to do the rituals anymore. He didn't have to invite it. They just started coming in and out whenever they wanted, and it would begin to shock him. And then they started turning on him and hurting him and doing things because this is every, I, every testimony I've ever heard of this kind of stuff. They all offer you good things and want good things, and then they begin to turn on you over time. And then he asked him one time, like, why is it that when in the beginning I had to work really hard and do these rituals and focus really intently and give you permission to come in, and it was very difficult for you to come in, and now you're just kind of like over and over and over again. I'm a revolving door to you, and you, nothing seems to stop you. Nor, And they said, well, in the beginning, everybody has a door that's sealed and bolted and locked to their heart. And, and, and the only way you can get in is you have to unbolt it and unlock it and get the door. But you've done this so many times that we've just ripped your door off the hinges. And now we can come in whenever we want. You have no door to your life anymore. It's gone. So then he became a Christian years later because a lot of this torment like really drove him to desperation. And he found healing and victory and vindication and, and relief through Christ. And then the Holy Spirit came in. And when the Holy Spirit came in, he had this saw this light, and it just drove everything out of his body. But he would still see them every once in a while, like hovering around him and trying to get in. 
And he, he knew that they couldn't because the Holy Spirit was in them, but it's still filled with fear. Like, you know that. But at the same time, it's like, but I've, I've, I, have, I have PTSD with demons, okay? Like, there's a thing. So he prayed to Jesus to help him deal with this. And in this dream, this vision that Christ gave him, Christ came in. There was this doorway. All this light started filling his doorway. He had a vision of being in a dark room and the doorway being there. And all this light came barreling into the doorway. And Christ walked through the doorway into his life. And then Christ turned around and pulled this door out of his back, out of the middle of nowhere, and put the door on his life. And then with the blood from his wrists, he sealed the door and blocked everything out. And from that point on, he never saw a spiritual being ever again tormenting him, like trying to, to haunt him or anything. And I thought that was such a powerful example mm-hmm. of what Christ is displaying here. Mm-hmm. The only way to guarantee that that addiction or a worse addiction or a demon or whatever will not come back in your life again after you did a really good job of cleaning it through your mm-hmm. self-help is if the Holy Spirit comes in. Mm-hmm. The Holy Spirit comes in. I've got lots of stories like that too if you want to know the books and all that kind of stuff. Beautiful Sight of Evil is a great book about demons being driven out by the Holy Spirit. Spirit of the Rainforest is a great book that does that. Um, the Light That Was Dark is another great book for that. They're all testimonies of people being haunted by demons, and the Holy Spirit just kicks butt when the demons try to get back in. So this is the point that Jesus is making. What are these waterless places that Jesus is talking about? I have no idea. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Verse 27. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd spoke out to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nurse. But he replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. She's like, Blessed is your mother. She's so amazing that she gave birth to you and raised you to be the great person that you are. There's nothing wrong with saying that, but what Jesus is saying is, No, 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 no. The real one is the one who obeys. The one who responds. Blessed is not the one who teaches. Blessed is the one who responds to the teaching. There's nothing special about me as a teacher up here. What is truly more special is when you hear the words of God through me and you say, I want that. And you change your life to allow that to happen in your life. That's the true blessing. That's the true blessing. That's the true person who's blessed, is the one who receives the teaching and the one who obeys and responds and allows things to change. Verse 29. As the crowds were increasing, Jesus began to say, This generation is a wicked generation. It looks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so the Son of Man will be a sign to this generation. Matthew's gospel goes on and says, Just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the grave for three days and three nights. And so the point here is that you're, I'm not giving you any more signs. I'm not going to do anything different. Yes, I'll still heal people. And yes, I'll cast out demons and all that kind of stuff. But you... That's not enough for you. It's almost like you want a different sign, another unique thing. It's kind of like um, when the Matrix came out. The Matrix was revolutionary in its technology and its graphics and all this kind of stuff. And it blew everyone's hair back. It was absolutely wild and amazing. 
And then when the Matrix 2 and 3 came out, everybody was like, eh, it was okay. Now, in my opinion, I thought the second two were just as good as the first. The problem was they didn't do anything new or revolutionary. It only came out a year or two later, so there's no like really amazing technology that got developed. And everybody's just like, eh, I've already seen that, done that. And I don't know if you would relate to this, but as I've gotten older and older, I find myself fast-forwarding through a lot of fat fight scenes in movies and wanting to just get to the dialogue or the plot and that kind of stuff because it's like, I've seen, I've, you've seen one shaky cam fight scene, you've seen them all, like, right? I mean, then every once in a while there's something that like wows me or whatever, and I want to pause. But there's a lot of ones like, yeah, I saw that in Born Identity, fast-forward. Yeah, I saw that in Mission Impossible. Like, and I'm more interested in the character development that's happening. And that's what Jesus is saying, like, you just want to be wowed. You've already seen demon possessions been undone. You've already seen people will be healed. You want something new. You've already seen television for the first time ever. Now you want color. You're never happy. Now you want 3D. Now you want holograms. And he says, no, I'm done. I'm not going to stop helping and healing people, but I'm done giving you something unique. The only thing that I'm going to give you after this is my death and resurrection. Just as Jonah dying and coming back to life, so to speak, and that wow Nineveh, that's the only thing I'm giving you left. And if the resurrection is not enough for you, and as we get to the parable of the rich man Lazarus in hell, and he makes that point, look, if you don't believe after the resurrection, nothing is nothing's going to change you. That's the only thing you're going to get. The queen of the south, which is the queen of Sheba, in 1 Kings chapter 10, the Queen of Sheba from Africa comes up and wants to see all the amazing things that Solomon has done and how God has blessed him. And there really seems to be a real sense of she wanted to know this God. The Queen of the South will rise up in judgment with the people of this generation. Now Jesus is implying here that she did embrace God because of the result of the visit. The king doesn't give you any oppression whether he, she truly embraced God or not, whether it was legitimate or authentic. But Jesus is saying that she will rise up and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and now something greater than Solomon is here. The people of Nineveh will stand up in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented when Jonah preached to them, and now something greater than Jonah is here. Look, those people had far less than what you did, and they repented. They didn't know the word of God. They didn't have the Shekinah glory of God with them. They didn't have the law. They didn't have the prophets. And in with Jonah's case, they had the most pathetic sermon that is ever given. Jonah didn't tell them what God he represented. He didn't tell them that they would be forgiven. He just told them, you're going to be destroyed in 40 days. He didn't even tell them to repent. His message was literally, you're going to be destroyed in 40 days. There, said it, God, happy, and he walked away. And that was enough for them to repent and turn to the legitimate God of the universe. And you have the law and the prophets, and you have the Shekinah glory of God, you have the miracles, you have the, and now you have the one who is the greatest. You have the Son of God himself, and now he's doing miracles and exorcisms and healings and resurrections in a way that you've never heard of or seen before. And you're like, prove it. I tell you that these people are going to rise up in judgment against you on your judgment day. Now, whether that's literal or not, I don't think that's the point. The point is that they bear testimony against you by they doing what they did and you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. Once again, the Bible is making the point that the foreigners are showing up the people. 
Don't ever think like, oh, we're Christians and we're in the church and we have Bible studies and we're faith is great because God has a reputation of taking the people that are outside the community of faith and they're showing more faith than the people in it. Verse 33. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a hidden place or under a basket, but on a lampstand so that those who come in and see the light, your eye is a lamp of your body. And when your eyes are healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is diseased, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, see to it that your whole body is full of light with no part in the dark. And it will be a full of light. And when the light of the lamp shines on you, when the light of the lamp shines on you. So what Jesus is saying is that a dark, dead, rotting life cannot issue forth light. Only when your life is filled with light and health can you issue forth light. Now, one of the most important phrases is at the very end it says, it will be full of light, your life, your body will be full of light when the light of the lamp shines on you. That's so important. Because the Greeks believed that they were already lights unto themselves. They believed that they were gods trapped in a material body. And they believed that they were the spark of light that came from the universe as a god and got trapped in a body of darkness. And so when you looked at the body, you saw darkness because that's the material realm. But the light shines out of that and you have your own light. You are your own source of light. And when the Greeks use this parable, this analogy, they they use the same phrase, let the light come out of your eyes and out of your soul. In fact, the whole point was to achieve more and more knowledge so the light could escape your body and leave the carcass behind and become a god again. And so they use this idea. But Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says your your life can only be full of light when I shine on you. You don't have light within you. I am the light of the world. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was the light of all mankind. And the light came into the darkness, which is us, the material realm, but the darkness did not accept nor receive the light. Just John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1 says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness. And anyone who walks with God is in the light. But if you're not walking with God, you're not in the light. For Jesus, it's the reverse. You don't have your own internal light. You are dark. You are empty. You are a corpse. Until Christ begins to live in you. So the one who turns themselves towards Jesus sits at his feet and prays, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, not mine. That's the one who's opened themselves to the light. And then the light will come in. And when the light starts coming into you and filling your life and cleaning the corners and the dark areas of your life out and taking claim of the different rooms of your house, slowly and gradually over time through sanctification, don't you dare hide that light. No one is foolish enough to hide lights when they light them up. And this is the point that Christ is making. The only way that your life can be filled with light is if you're connected to me. Then you have a duty to go out and share with other people. Welcome to Luke and Acts. 
Luke, the disciples, had to sit at his feet and learn and absorb his teaching as light and then become in sync with him. And in Acts, they go out and they share the light. They let it shine. Now, I'm not saying you do the first. It's not like a battery. You get recharged up first, and then we can turn you on. But the idea is just that you cannot begin to shine until you're filled. And then when you're filled, you're expected to shine. That's the point that Christ is making here. And that's important to do, too. Because welcome to America, too, because this theology has been coming back. And if you took comparative religions with me, you've seen this. This theology of you're your own light and just release it to the world. And the best wisdom that we can come up with is love is love. Well, yeah, duh. I just want to respond and say wood is wood and water is water and air is air. But God's definition of love is way better. We know love by this, that he first laid down his life for us. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. They will know how you love them, they know belong to me. They will know that you belong to me by the way that you love each other. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, life, and everything, and love your neighbor as yourself. You're not to think of yourself more highly than you are. His definition just goes on and on, and is way more multifaceted, way more practical. We have this theology in America, too. You have your own light. Let it shine. Well, how's that been working out for us? Verse 37. As he spoke, a Pharisee invited Jesus to have a meal with him. So he went in and took his place at the table. And the Pharisee was astonished when he saw that Jesus did not first wash his hands before the meal. He would be canceled in this COVID culture. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and the place plate, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, didn't the one who made the outside make the inside as well? But give from your heart to those who need, then everything will be clean for you. What he's making clear is that we, these Pharisees are getting so easily offended that certain rituals are not happening. They're so easily offended that people don't act the way that they want them to act. And what Jesus is saying is, you're so focused on that, and meanwhile inside your heart you're dead and cold. You haven't cleaned in your inside. A lot of times people who get the most offended a lot usually are harboring things themselves. And I know it's like typically they're angry at you because they're guilty of the same thing. And that's not always true. But there's usually something that they know that they're doing something wrong and it's haunting them. And their defense mechanism, we all have defense mechanisms, but their particular defense mechanism is that they're judging you and getting everybody's attention on you. Then people are less likely to see their own crap. And if they're judging you, then they can make themselves feel better and they don't have to think about it. Now, I'm not saying that's true of every single person who judges you or gets offended very easily. I'm not saying that. We're way too complicated for that to be the answer. But that's a very common thing. And what Jesus is saying is you're getting so offended because I'm not doing these things in a proper way. And you're getting so offended because you don't like my behavior the way it is. But meanwhile, you've got all this darkness in you. You've not pointed yourself towards the light of God. You've not allowed it to fill you. And all that's coming out is legalism and, and harshness and judgment and condemnation. 
You are not able to see the deeper wounds in people and see beyond their social status and garbs and their skin color and ethnicity and gender and, and really truly get to the matter of who they are and how they're broken and help them. It's just easier to stay at a distance and judge. Verse 42, but woe to you Pharisees. Woe communicates this deep, deep anguish and sorrow because of the death of a loved one or the death of your nation or whatever. Woe is only use when there's great grief in your life as a result of death or a great grief in your life as a result of a serious, harsh judgment that came down upon you. What Jesus sings, woe to you Pharisees, a great judgment that is going to bring a deep anguish and sorrow and depression in your life is coming. For you give a tenth of your mint and rue and every herb, yet you neglect justice and love for God. You, you give to charities a lot, but you're not just. When people are wronged, you don't actually deliver justice. This is, you have to understand, like, it's very easy to convince people that you're a very good person by giving money and things to charities. It's very easy just to donate to a cause. Or like Bill Gates when he throws like a million dollars at Hurricane Katrina. And everybody's like, oh, you're so amazing. It's like a quarter to him. But what they don't see is the injustice. The, 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 the millions of people, or the, the, sorry, the thousands of people that Bill Gates has killed and is experimenting on them with his, his drugs and stuff and not caring about it and not doing anything to fix it after he's killed them or left them crippled in other countries. And all they see is how good this person, now the veil is beginning to be pulled back on him. And not, I'm only picking on him because he's so evil. But um, it's so easy to say, look at me, look at me. I'm giving this, I'm giving this, I'm giving this. And meanwhile, you're doing things that are wronging people, wronging them deeply and personally. Woe to you because you're neglecting justice. Remember Micah said, he has taught you, O man, what is right and what is good to love mercy, to do his right, and to live with God and to obey him. But you should have done these things without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees! You love the best seats in the synagogues and elaborate greetings in the marketplace. You love people greeting you and, and fawning over you and having the best and everybody looking at you. Meanwhile, you're taking this from other people. There's so many people who have nothing because you've taken them from them so that everybody can see how great you are. Woe to you! You are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without realizing it. You're beautiful on the outside. And people admire the, the beautiful stones, the tombstones in the grave and how immaculate the, the gardener keeps the cemetery and the grass and the flowers and all this stuff. And they're walking over you and in your life and they have no idea that you're a rotting corpse on the inside. These are the things that we need to check. That when, we've, when these things are in our life, we've allowed ourselves to become corrupted. And we have this a little bit. All of us have this a little bit. Where, we're, we're, where we want the best and we're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they got there first. I wanted that. Oh, they took the biggest piece of the cake at the party. You see, we should have gotten in line faster. 
there's hardly anything left over at this church potluck. If we hadn't talked and we got in line faster, then we wouldn't be picking over the leftovers with all this little stuff that I don't like in there. And when we do that, <laughs> right? And, 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 and we love like, oh, yes, I feel this need and, and I give this money and I do these things. But then at the same time, it's easy to ignore the people in our lives that are hurting. And we're all guilty of this. It's easy to look at governments and condemn them, but governments got like that because it started small and was unchecked. We need to check ourselves now when these things are small so they don't get big like they are in the Pharisees and the leadership's lives, and then it becomes much harder to crucify. The bigger these things get in us, the harder it is to crucify them. One of the experts in the religious law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us too. He is not politically and politically correct in any kind of way. Like if you really read through Jesus and what he's saying and paying attention to what we've done, there's no political correctness here. There's no gentleness. He's gentle with those who are broken, but those who are snobbery and self-entitled, he has no gentleness with them. You insult us too. But Jesus replied, woe to you. He's like, you want insulting? I'm going to insult you. Now, don't get this wrong. It's easy to think like Jesus, like, I'm not, I'm getting to you now. He doesn't take pleasure in this. Like, when we do this, we get angry. And we're hurt and we're wounded. And then we lash out on somebody to rebuke. And our rebuke may be totally just. But it's also born out of our own emotions and our own desire to want them to hurt. And then when somebody says them, they're like, oh, I haven't gotten to you yet. And there's this sense, I want you to hurt too because you made me hurt. And I know everything I'm saying is totally right. And you should be hearing this. But the spirit I'm giving it is this harsh pound of flesh that I want. And when Jesus is not doing it that way. Jesus is saying it because they need to hear it. There's no malice in his voice. I mean, there is a sense of, I'm, I am going to you next. But not in a, I'm so deeply wounded and emotional and angry and want my pound of flesh that I'm going to lay it into. But then I'm hoping my words of rebuke will wake you up to the reality that you're in and that you'll repent and come to me. Woe to you experts in the law as well. You load people down with burdens and difficult to bear, yet you yourselves refuse to touch the burdens with even one of your fingers. You put so many cultural expectations on people and load them down with so many rules that they have to follow, they can't keep track of it all. And at any little moment, this is what we're doing right now in America. I really, truly am sorry that if I offend somebody or I step on toes, and I, I don't intend to just offend people, but it's hard to live in this culture right now and not call things out, especially when it comes to this Bible. But we, we have so many expectations. Think about the cancel culture right now. Now, don't get me wrong. Racism, um, drugs, or the way that you've treated people, none of that is excusable. Anything that you've done that has wronged people or hurt them or anything like that is completely inexcusable. And there should be consequences for that. But we're now living in a culture where people dig into your past to find things. And then they cancel you in your entirety based on one thing that you did. We're all guilty. 
We've all screwed up. We have all done dumb things. We have all done mean things. We have all done horrible, hurtful things to people. And you can find anything in my life. You can find anything in yours. We, we're going to end up canceling everybody, canceling ourselves. And we, we write them off completely. We find out that they've said this one thing at one time in their life. And we don't, we don't even account for growth. Okay, Matt Damon was talking about this, although he felt really guilty and wanted to cancel himself. But he was talking about how, like, he, 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 he had this, like, he was telling this story about years ago when he had his daughters and they were saying something and he made a comment about homosexuality, which was totally wrong, and he admitted that it was wrong. And his daughter called him out on it and he said, you know what, you're right, that was really wrong of me to say that was insensitive and that was da-da-da-da-da. And he, he talked about it as a growth moment. And they canceled him. The internet community canceled him. This is a guy confessing that he did it out of his own. Nobody dug it up out of his past. He confessed his own will, trying to show that he had grown and changed. And they canceled him. And that's, that's what he's talking about here. There's no way we can live up to the culture's expectation of what we're supposed to be anymore. You mess up one time, you're done. And now there's celebrities who have canceled people and then now they're getting canceled and they're like, wait a minute. I'm not supposed to be canceled. I'm like them. I think like them. And now they're turning on me. This is a Chelsea Handler is one of them. Like, and then Johanna Michael, or um, jo Scarlett Johansson. Like, they're all now, they canceled people and now they're getting canceled. Because there's 50 million things that you have to be. And you have to cross them all off. And they're, 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 they're like, they're 400 and whatever million. And they're, they're, but they don't have that one that 500 million one, and they're like, oh, you're so close, and they cancel you. And I know that's not everybody, but if this keeps going on, it's going, it's going to suck more and more people in. And, and if it goes on and on, we're going to cut so many good people that have changed or just have a few flaws that there won't be many people left that our culture can be built on, and the people that are good are going to be too scared to say or do anything or come out of their house ever. And this is what Jesus is saying. Woe to you, you put so many burdens and expectations for people to act in such a perfect way that they're collapsing in death under your weight. They're in fear. They're, in, they're having anxiety attacks. There's like lots of celebrities now that are showing up in the hospital for having anxiety attacks now. Gee, I wonder why. This is what God is saying. Woe to you for doing this, you experts in the law. Woe to you, you build the tombs of the prophets whom your ancestors killed. You're the ones who are building the tombs ready to kill more people for not acting the way that you're supposed to like they did. So you testify that you prove of the deeds of your ancestors. For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles and some of whom they will kill and persecute so that this generation may be held accountable for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be charged against this generation. Woe to you, experts in religious. I'm going to hold you accountable for every prophet that every one of your ancestors have killed. Why? Because you're going to kill me, the greatest of them all. I am the fulfillment and the total embodiment of all prophets. And when you kill me, it's as if you're killing them all because everything they were about leads to me. When you cancel my children, you're canceling me. When you attack them and destroy them, you're attacking and destroying me. 
and I will hold you accountable. You have taken away the key to knowledge. Your job was to unlock the scriptures so that people can know God and get you hidden that key away and burden them with expectations that nobody can live up to and only brings shame and sorrow. You did not go in yourselves and you hindered those who were going in. You didn't even go in to see God. You stood at the entrance and talked about who God is. And they had to jump through your hoop and your door to know God. The question is, is there anything in your life that's doing that? Do you live in such a way that you condemn people and judge them and hold them to these expectations that are so high that you don't end up even knowing God yourself because it's all about rules? And then you keep other people from knowing God. When he went out from there, the experts in the law and the Pharisees began to oppose him bitterly. Oh, they didn't like being told that. And we don't like being told that. That's scary to look in the mirror and see that you're just like that in some kind of a way. And they ask him hostile questions about many things, plotting against him to catch him and something they might, he might say. This is the plotting. Now we've seen Nineveh, sorry, we've seen Nazareth, who all really emotionally got up and tried to grab him and throw him off the cliff. But that was a passion trying to kill him. What we're seeing now is they're plotting now. They're plotting. This is not an emotional, non-thinking desire to kill him. This is, we are going to premeditate this. We're going to premeditate this. 